0: A scripture is from Genesis this morning. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalim named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Khazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up an offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep him from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adalamite went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim which is the on the road to Timnah, for she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as, as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that he was, she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adelamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road in, at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So we went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a lapping stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and she did not sleep with her again.
1: Thank you, Bill. Bet you weren't expecting that one this morning, were you? Spicy text. Uh, We have been working through some major figures in the book of Genesis over the last uh, couple months now, actually some of whom have large swaths of their lives to describe over several chapters, while others receive just kind of brief mentions throughout the text. And then several weeks, we're going to be looking at Joseph, and his story is a large portion of the end of Genesis. Uh, But this morning, we've actually jumped ahead just a little bit. Uh, There's a a short bit of Joseph's beginnings, uh, and then there's this kind of of out-of-place narrative about Judah, uh, to talk about this is, passage is kind of wedged into the beginning of Joseph's story right after he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And at first it may seem oddly placed, but its placement is nearly as strange as the content of it, right? <laughs> as we read this morning, uh, it narrates the incredibly tragic event that, uh, with Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. The patriarchs in Genesis, they have uh, made some rotten mistakes, but this is pretty big, right? This is a big deal. What makes it even worse, though, is as we reflect on Judah, this is really kind of the keystone narrative to understand his character in the book of Genesis. Um, He doesn't come off any more favorably in the chapter right before this when he is the one who steps up in front of brothers to suggest that instead of killing Joseph, as they all want to do, that they should just sell him into slavery instead. Uh, So it's not that much better of a uh, a presentation of him. Uh, But Judah's character is important for us. Because he's arguably the most important of Jacob's sons. Judah is the ancestor of King David, the greatest king, remembered during the time of Israel's monarchy. And more importantly, Judah and David are the ancestors of Jesus. So understanding Judah is important for us. I mean, one of the Messianic titles that we get for Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, right? So not only should we be interested as readers to learn about Judah's character, it's also of interest to hear about how his family line will continue on. And this is what we get, right? So what, if anything, can we learn from all of this. So, um, some details about him. He's the fourth child who's born to Jacob's wife Leah. If you remember remember that Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. His name means I will praise. Um, As I mentioned already, when the other brothers considered killing Joseph, he suggests selling them into slavery. Um, Let's deal with an important context question first. What is going on with this whole deal with Ur and the brothers, Onan and Shelah? Well, just from some background context, in ancient Israelite culture, they had a practice known as liberate uh, marriage where widows would be married to the next closest relative in the family's household. This is actually still practiced in some cultures today, uh, particularly in societies where women don't have any means of owning property for themselves. This could be a way of caring for widows in the family. And additionally, for cultures that place a great emphasis on family names and heritage, it's a way to keep the family name going. For the, the oldest, because the oldest son who had died, then the relative had an obligation to marry the wife and produce an heir that would receive that dead husband's inheritance and carry on his name. A man who refused to do this admit that he would be disrespecting the family and failing to adequately provide for his brother's widow. This is actually described in Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verse five here, I have it right, up already. If brothers are are living together and uh, one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son that she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And it goes on and it says, however, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife. She shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to keep the brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of uh, this town shall summon him and talk to him. And if if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what, you, uh, what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known as the family of the unsandaled. I'm sure there's some significance to the whole sandal thing that we don't understand, but I just think it's kind of hilarious. That should be the punishment for more things, right? In consequence, to, uh, even today, it's just kind of a funny way to do that. Anyway, though, uh, Onan, this brother, has decided that he didn't want to have the burden of raising his dead brother's child. But he also did not want to be humiliated uh, publicly and in the eyes of the family. So instead, he pretended to care uh, for for Tamar, but in secret did what he needed to do in order to ensure that he would not have a child. But God sees what is done in secret, and Onan gets his due. So Ur has mysteriously died. We don't know why, although it was a result of his wicked way to specify. Now, Onan has died. Finally, Judah asks Tamar Tamar to wait until his youngest comes of age, secretly intending to just kind of get rid of her or ignore her. Now, the Bible does have a lot to say about sex, and not just who is allowed to put what, uh, where and with whom. God's word also provides us all sorts of narratives and teachings to guide us into truth about what healthy expressions of sexuality do and do not look like. But if there's one overarching message about sex here in the text, I'd say that it's this. Sex is not ultimately about the fulfillment of our personal desires. What do I mean by that? I'm not just talking about romantic desire here. That's part of it. But we also bring all sorts of other desires into the sexual realm. Sex is about a lot of things. But scripture tells us pretty glaringly that sex is not just about getting what you want Onan misses the mark in his sex life because he approaches his marriage to Tamar as a means to avoid shame. He uses Tamar, but isn't willing to take care of her or to raise a family. Judah misses the mark because he tries to use sex as a means to comfort himself in his grief, possibly. It doesn't actually say that for sure, but uh, that could be a way of interpreting this. He also uses and abuses Tamar, not realizing that it's her. And this time, it does result in a child. Tamar isn't exactly a, a model of sexual purity here either. But to be fair to her, we don't know for sure that she intended to be viewed as a prostitute. All it says is that she wore a veil, and she didn't want to be recognized. But when Judah propositions her, she does go along with it, Seizes the opportunity to gain some kind of leverage for justice. And Tamar is the only one who seems to be thinking herself when it comes to her sex life. Realizing Judah's family, li- uh, family had given up on her, She could have looked elsewhere, but she decided she wanted to try to do right by her late husband, so she did what she had to do. What can we take from any of this? Whether you are single, married, celibate, confused, or whatever other identifier you want to put on your uh, sex life, we can all reflect, reflect critically on how our sexual desires and the ways that we pursue them affect others. That might be a difficult question to reflect on, particularly because the prevailing attitude of our world is that what happens in the bedroom is nobody else's business, right? But the truth is that our romantic covenant relationships say something to a watching world about what love truly is. Sex isn't just about a moment. It's an act of covenantal love that creates and heals and bonds And it has effects on our emotional, social, spiritual, physical, and even financial lives. We could talk a lot more about that, but I feel like we've probably made it uncomfortable enough as it is. Um, But for now, we have more to explore with Judah. Let's talk about Judah's hypocrisy here as well. In addition to his moral failings with his sex life, Judah's hypocrisy is highlighted in the latter half of this text. So after visiting this lady, who he thought was a prostitute affiliated with the local shrine, he sends his buddy Hira to take care of the payment. Now at that time, there were some prostitutes who were affiliated with local cult shrines, possibly making it possible for a man to discreetly pay for services and play it off or as simply paying some sort of religious tribute if someone asked unwanted questions. But they can't find her. And when they can't find her, due to reasons that it would seem worse to just cut his losses, than to raise any fuss by trying to find his, his ring and his staff in the seal. And doing so will reveal his indiscretion. But then, news comes out that Tamar is pregnant. And specifically because she had been selling herself for her money. And Judah is outraged. Does she
0: know that that's wrong? Then he sees it. His staff to bring
1: and seal. The text ends with this really profound phrase, she is more righteous than I. This is the one thing that may make Judah an admirable character. And the same is true for his descendant King David. In all of his failures, he doesn't have a problem with admitting his fault. From this point onward, Judas seems to become a model of humility and repentance. That is what marks him as a leader. An observation about this is that humility is key to integrity and leadership. There's been a startling amount of abuse scandals in our culture uh, about leaders and especially even leaders in the church. And so because it is particularly difficult to understand why people start to lose trust in institutions and trust in institutions like the church as well right there, there's a paradoxical thing that happens that many people in these kinds of institutions who hear about an allegation are often tempted to ignore it or cover it up for fear of tarnishing the reputation of the institution as a whole they argue the mission is too important and to reveal this or do something about it may distract from that mission until they cover it up for the greater good but there's two problems with that reasoning the first is that the truth always comes out at some point and when it comes out and it is revealed that it's been covered up it's even worse than it would have been at the beginning the second thing is that the reality is actually quite the opposite when Uh, institutions acknowledge wrongdoing in leaders and deal with it appropriately, it's been shown to actually increase trust in those institutions rather than degrading it. I think much of that is because it proves that the abused are actually valued. Judah here, he starts to obtain humility, not just because he has come to a recognition of how sinful that he's been, but because he comes to a greater awareness of what all of this has meant for Tamar. And we read stories like this and later stories of David's many failures. But we still find these characters heroic because they allow their mistakes to be brought into light so that God can bring life and light to the process. Transparency, transparency breeds trust, and trust leads change. Now, Judah, understandably, does not come off looking good in this text, right? It's decidedly ugly. And Judah's humility, it doesn't immediately exonerate him or make it any better. He just admits and acknowledges what went wrong. The next time that we see Judah is when the brothers head to Egypt to look for food during a famine. And if you recall that bit of the story, uh, they end up coming to their brother Joseph. They don't recognize him at first, but they're all before him. And there's this kind of back and forth exchange that happens. We'll go into that in later weeks. And Joseph Uh, at some point tries to ask them to go back, but to leave their youngest brother now, Benjamin, to stay there and kind of in his custody. And Judah is the one who steps up to say, this would break my father's heart.
0: Take me instead. It's these small acts of humility, of courage,
1: and self-sacrifice that... Start to make Judah stand apart the rest of his brothers. Now, this narrative it's decidedly tragic, and yet, because of Tamar's shrewd courage and Judah's humility, there's a baby born—a baby boy named Perez, who is the ancestor of Boaz, who is the great-grandfather of David, from whose family line we will get Jesus, Messiah. In fact, Tamar is the first woman in Jesus' genealogy. Not Sarah, not Rebecca, nor even Rachel. Tamar is the first woman mentioned in Jesus' lineage according to Matthew's Gospel. This is Jesus, God entered into human flesh who made zero mistakes. And he models the same sort of humility and courage and self sacrifice that David and Judah made. Jesus. Does the imaginable. He takes the darkest depths of our sin, our anger, our pain upon himself and willingly gives himself up to die so that we might live. Jesus proved that he could look on our utter sin and rejection of him and respond with love so that we can look on his love and give up our foolish pride, self seeking ways. So God takes broken sinners like Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, he makes something incredible from their lives. Jesus did the same thing with the twelve disciples, a ragtag group of nobodies who ended up changing the world. And do it with us too. If we will let him work through our weakness, if we can humble ourselves before him. My prayer this morning is that we would humble our hearts to give up our desires, our pride, our reputation to Jesus today. He's the only one who's worthy to hold them. Lord, we thank you that even in the ugliest of situations, you are able to bring transformation and change, bring something out of nothing. We pray, Lord, that as we come to you day by day we acknowledge our vulnerabilities before we pray that you might be able to do something these little small acts of faith that we might pursue you not for our reputation not for what others may see from that change but because in you there is life
0: There's wholeness, restoration, there's goodness. All we want you are.